It was a dark and stormy night. I was driving my friend Amanda's car, and I was lost. We couldn't find that dirt road in Paducah, Kentucky, that led to our friend Stuart's cabin in the woods. Stuart was directing me on the phone as I drove in the driving rain, and I remember him telling me, as I'm describing what I'm seeing or barely seeing in the dark and in the rain, he said to me, that's the road. So I change lanes suddenly not to miss the turn yet again. And then the phone flew out of my hands and the car spun out of control. I hadn't seen the speeding car coming by in my blind spot. I knew it was all my fault. I was guilty. I not only had totaled my friend's car, but I put the lives of my two college friends in the car with me and others on the road in danger. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I was also relieved for no one was injured. But still, standing in the rain on that country Kentucky road, as we sorted out insurance and assessed the damage, I wanted to disappear. Can you remember a time that you felt deep embarrassment or shame? For many of us, this context, the church or Christianity, stirs up feelings of shame. Maybe you have felt judged by Christians because you don't fit the cookie-cutter Christian mold. Perhaps you feel ashamed because of your past. Maybe you've been divorced, or maybe you deal with same-sex attraction. Maybe you've been to prison. If you have felt shame and embarrassment because of Christians, and you're here today, or you're watching online, I want to commend you for your courage, for being here, for listening. And I have a message of hope For you today from God's word and for us. Although the hope doesn't come how we might expect. Oddly, to know healing from your shame, you must realize that you are not nearly as ashamed as you should be. And neither am I. That brings us to our text this morning. I would encourage you to turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra is an often unfamiliar book to us here in the church. You might even struggle finding it. If if you find yourself in Job and Psalms, you've gone too far, go back. It's after the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles. I think we'll be helped as we walk along today through this text in Ezra chapter 9 to keep our Bibles open as we walk through this text together. This is my third of four sermons on how to pray. Months ago, I entitled this sermon from Ezra 9, I entitled it How to Pray for Mercy. But as I studied the text this week, I realized something. This is not a prayer for mercy. Uh, this is a sinner's prayer. This is a prayer of the guilty. So follow along with me as I read, and I'll warn you, this is an intense passage, so buckle up. Ezra 9, starting in verse 6, we'll go to verse 15. This is Ezra, 
And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings, to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. Verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve us, a remnant for us, and to give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave us through your servant, the prophet, saying, the land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, Though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you. With our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Before we even ask God for mercy, there is something that must happen first. We must be truly embarrassed for our sin. We should feel ashamed, and we must know ourselves as guilty. My main point is this. Those cast down in guilt and shame can be lifted to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Those cast down in guilt and shame can be lifted to stand in the righteousness of Christ. That's where we're going. And I have three questions to get us there. Now, all my three main points are questions. And then there's sub points underneath that will show up on the slide. So if it's just a word or a phrase, that's a subpoint. If it's a question, that's one of the three main points, just for clarity. I will give you the questions and the subpoints as we go along in the slides. The first question is, what can we say? What can we say? Guilty, guilty, guilty. That was the big headline earlier this week. Maybe you breathed A sigh of relief, finally. Maybe this verdict raised questions for you, and you wonder if Chauvin got a fair trial. I know for many of us, this case brings many emotions to the surface. And we should process our feelings about Floyd's death 
and Chauvin's trial wisely, prayerfully, and humbly. But this case that dominated the news this last week is not the case that we're considering this morning. We are considering the case against God's people, God's chosen people. And in this case, there is no question to what the verdict's going to be. Verse 6 For their iniquities are higher than their heads. Their guilt is as high as the heavens. Verse 7 drives it home again. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Israel is drowning in her guilt. Her guilt is terrible. In the second half of verse 7, we learn of Israel's previous time in the slammer. She was sentenced to 70 years in Babylon. Why? Well, we will see a bit of what her crime was in verses 12 and 13 later. But for now, we see that Israel was convicted simply because of her iniquities. Did you see that in verse 7? God shamed Israel with an exile beginning in 605 B.C. So just to set the context a little bit, Babylon came into Jerusalem, burned down the temple, took most of God's people there as slaves, and even gouged out the eyes of King Zedekiah following the slaughter of King Zedekiah of Judah's sons. So while Israel served her time and has now returned to Jerusalem, Ezra seems to be saying in this prayer, once a con, always a con. See verse 7, their terrible guilt, iniquities, and open shame remains as it is today. Israel's guilt is why she was sentenced to exile in Babylon. You can get the people out of Babylon, but you can't get Babylon out of the people. In verses 6 and 7, guilt and iniquities are the repeated words. But in verses 8 and 9, we have a transition. Grace and relief are the key repeated words here. But now, Ezra prays in verse 8, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God. The brief moment was 70 years in captivity that was now over and God's people had returned to the land at the time of the writing of this text. 42,360 Jews had returned to Jerusalem, not including the servants and the singers. The temple rebuilding had begun. Ezra is making the point in verses 8 and 9. God would have been just and good to abandon his people for their sin, but he hadn't. He had brought them back home in grace. They deserved to be sentenced to life in prison, but it was a, a short time in terms of God's way, his perspective. And God has given the Jews a little relief and light to their eyes as they rejoice with the rebuilding of the temple. But you need to read verses 8 and 9 in context. You can't just yank them out and say, oh, here's a prayer of praise to God for his grace. God's grace is not being highlighted here to inspire our faith or to give us warm fuzzies. God's grace is underlining actually how culpable Israel really is. Israel has been guilty in the past. God exiled them for a short time, showing them grace. And then they start heaping up their iniquities again as soon as getting out of prison, so to speak. Ezra's building the case. In verses 6 and 7, 
Ezra establishes Israel's guilt, past and present. Verses 8 and 9, he reminds them how patient and gracious God has been with them, and yet they have still rebelled in the face of God's grace and mercy towards them. So then Ezra asks a question. Verse 10, now, our God, what can we say in light of this? What can we say? What can we say when we are guilty? Nothing. Israel's guilty. That's, that much is clear. No need for a video, no need for a jury. They're living in sin. And God's law is what makes that clear. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. Ezra points to how Israel has specifically broken God's law in verses 11 and 12. This is her crime, both past and present. Now, verses 11 and 12 look like a one quote from Scripture. And you might struggle trying to find that word for word. But this is not just one quote from one passage in the law, but it's rather a mosaic of a number of different uh, quotations and allusions. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 23, 2 Kings 21. What verses 12 and 13 are getting at is that Israel had become unequally yoked with the pagan nations that led her away from the true worship and devotion to her God. It's almost like Ezra's doing this. Imagine you're going 70 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone and you get pulled over and the police officer happens to pull you over right next to the 25-mile-per-hour speed limit sign. You know, as you roll down your window, he could just kind of point at the sign like, you weren't doing that. Ezra's pointing to the law in verses 11 and 12, and he's not just pointing to an arbitrary rule like, gotcha, you broke that, these are the rules, see section 5, part C, no. The law, you have to understand the law to Israel is grace. It was a covenant that God had made and that Israel had made together. To break the law was to break the relationship. Now, some of us are still distracted by the law here. We're, we're, we're looking at verses 11 and 12 and be, we're like, wait, what? Israel wasn't allowed to, to marry people from other nations? That sounds racist. And I can understand why you would think that until we look a little bit closer. This law was unique for Israel's occupation of the promised land. Israel was surrounded by pagan nations that worshiped other gods, and they were supposed to drive those nations out. So this law that's alluded to in 11 and 12 is not about ethnicity. It's about worship. We know this from a bunch of other scriptures that we won't go to today, but I'll just I do find it interesting that the person who wrote the law, Moses in Deuteronomy 7 and 23, he was married to a non-ethnic Jew, Zipporah, who was often more righteous than him, at least in one case. Um, all that to say, Christians in the past have misapplied texts like Ezra 9 and 10 and claimed that interracial dating and marriage is wrong, according to God's word, because of texts like this. I think, actually I don't think we know from the rest of Scripture, that's a horrible misreading of Scripture, and it's wicked. For we believe that interracial marriage is actually and can be a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you have more questions about that little aside that I just did, I'd be happy to talk to you 
more or point you to some helpful resources. Bottom line, Israel had become like the wicked and detestable nations by disobeying God's clear warning against marrying pagan women. She is clearly guilty of breaking the law. She's caught in the act. The evidence is right there in the home, in the Asherah poles, all around Judah and Israel, and the, and the idols littered throughout the land. What can Israel say when she has betrayed the Lord her God? And this question in verse 10 is the very question I want us to consider for ourselves. What can we say when we are guilty of breaking God's law? Especially when he has shown us such grace. I think we should do what Ezra does. Yes, if we are in Christ, we are already under grace and not under the law. But we know that the God that Ezra prays to is the same God that we pray to today. And this prayer here instructs us how to pray when we deeply feel our guilt and our shame before a holy God. So, friends in Hinson Baptist Church, this prayer is instructive for us today. Israel's drowning in our guilt for becoming worldly by intermarrying with the surrounding nations. Maybe we as a church have become worldly in our materialism? Have we become worldly in our sexuality, in our speech, in our gossip, even here within the church family, in the ways that we show favoritism? Friends, God has shown us amazing grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ and through his death. And yet his grace all too often leads us to act like entitled children. So just as Ezra asked in verse 10, what do we have to say for ourselves? Ezra is too ashamed to ask God for anything in these verses because of their guilt. Ezra takes God's side against his own and Israel's sin. And we should too. You know, in addiction recovery, often the first step is to acknowledge that you have a problem. If rehab centers and rehabilitation understands this, we in the church should too. We are like a rehab center here at the church. We have a problem. And it's not a small problem. We have sinned against a holy and gracious God. What do we have to say for ourselves? Well, we can confess our sin. We can acknowledge that we have done wrong. We can say it. We can say it out loud. We can be specific. We can own it. We can own our guilt. Acknowledge that we are guilty before a holy God. Will we do this? Will we do this together? We know that words can be cheap, though. We can be transparent, and it can feel really good to get things off our chest, to confess. We can talk about the bad things that we have done all day long, but then not have any life change. So if we do nothing about what we confess, what is it good for? This leads us to our second question. Second question, what should we do? What should we do? Look at chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 again. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again? And intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? 
wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Ezra doesn't have a very modern view of guilt or shame, does he? Today we're told it's not your fault. There's a time and place for that. Even after my accident that I described earlier, I kept on saying in my embarrassment and shame, I'm so sorry, it's, it was clearly, it's all my fault. Until a stranger took me aside and said, actually, don't say that for insurance reasons. <laughs> but let's consider the implications of Ezra's prayer of confession for what we should do. For simply acknowledging our guilt is not sufficient on its own. Look at verse 13. After all that has happened to us, again, just a reminder, that's a reference to Israel's Babylonian exile. Why did the exile happen? Well, what does the text say? Because of her evil deeds and terrible guilt. This is the second time that Ezra's acknowledging the exile was Israel's fault. They had no one to blame but themselves. All of Israel's suffering and misfortune were because she had abandoned her covenant relationship with the Lord, her God. But then notice how verse 13 brings together the themes of guilt and grace that we were considering in our first point. Did you notice that? God showed grace because that 70 years of exile was far less than what Israel deserved. And God brought Israel back to the promised land, to Jerusalem. He preserved a remnant for himself. Israel's guilty. God is gracious. So how should Israel respond? What should she do? Verse 14 asks two questions. Let's just for our purposes combine them into one single simple question. Basically, verse 14, I think, is asking at least this. If we continue in sin now, wouldn't God be right to abandon us? If we continue in sin now, wouldn't God be right to abandon us? The chilling answer is yes. God would be right and just to abandon his people who continue in habitual sin. For it was Israel who divorced God by marrying pagan wives. As soon as she got released from captivity, she returned to the same old practices, like a dog returning to its vomit. It's pathetic. If only it didn't strike so close to home. For we, too, misunderstand God's grace and its purpose in our lives. And all too often, we have a really demented view of guilt and shame. Let's take that second one first, a misunderstanding of guilt and shame. We misunderstand the purpose of guilt and shame. All too often, our guilt and shame is like a downward spiral. Sometimes our guilt and shame can cause us to despair and continue in sin. We say, well, I'm already guilty. Might as well. I've already messed up. What's another look, another drink, another illicit pleasure or experience? already gone this far might as well go all the way when we continue in paths of sin because we feel ashamed condemned and guilty it exposes that our relationship with the living god has become transactional god you're not giving me what i want right now you're not making this very easy for me so what's the point in listening to you obeying you worshiping you Ezra's intense feelings of shame and guilt led to the opposite response. He mourned the sin, and that led to repentance, 
We can see how it led to the repentance in Ezra chapter 10. You can read that this afternoon and read about how Israel repented. But I want us to point, I want us to see in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the point of our guilt and shame, the purpose. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Friends, our, our, uh, our friends, um, Ezra and Paul, are exposing a chilling reality that we need to hear today. When our guilt and shame lead us to continue in our sin and we do nothing about it, it exposes our guilt before a holy God who would be right to destroy us leaving us no remnant or survivor. Instead, we should let our guilt and shame lead to repentance and know the safety and the righteousness of our God, which we'll consider here in a minute. Even more briefly, we need to consider how we misunderstand grace. We misunderstand, we abuse God's grace because All too often, we treat grace as an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card. But listen to what Paul again says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I find it really interesting that not only guilt and shame, but grace, all of these are meant to lead to the same outcome. Repentance. And I trust as you perhaps have read this text this week and as we've briefly walked through uh, verses 6 through 14, that we are feeling the weight on our soul. Let's pray that that weight, that burden would lead to confession and repentance. And let's pray that our church, that this spiritual family would grow in having a culture of confession and repentance. That's what I want to consider now, still under the second point, a culture of confession and repentance. I wonder if you notice something in verses 6 through 14. This isn't just one sinner's prayer. This is a prayer for sinners led by a righteous scribe and priest, Ezra. In Ezra 7.10, we learn something about this dude. What do we know about Ezra? Well, Ezra... Chapter 7, verse 10, had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had not sinned in regarding the marrying of the pagan women. He knew the law. He obeyed it, and he taught it. And yet, though Ezra is innocent, did you notice in this prayer how Ezra chooses to share in Israel's guilt and shame? He never throughout the entire prayer, lets himself off the hook and says, your shame, your guilt, your sin. No, it's always my sin, our sin, our guilt, our shame. The pronouns are clear. I am ashamed because our iniquities are higher than our heads. Verse 10, we have, a, we have abandoned the commands. You know, if someone close to you, like a family member or friend, does something really embarrassing or shameful, you can kind of have that secondhand shame. 
you know, you're like, especially maybe if it's one of your kids, you're like, oh, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. And don't worry, family, Ashley, Sam, Iris, and Willa, you guys have never embarrassed or shamed me. You're perfect in every way. Uh, but is this what's going on here? Ezra's like feeling this like secondhand shame for the people that he serves as priest. I think it's more than that. Ezra, though personally innocent, identifies with the people of Israel in their sin. And then he acts as their representative in confessing their sin. Now, we know that we will all stand individually before the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, at the same time, we see all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that we are all in this together. Ezra gets that. We are a community of faith in a similar way that Israel was a community of faith. And this idea of, of, cor- of a corporate confession and repentance is really difficult for us to get our minds around in our individualistic modern age, right? It's, it's, but it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a foreign thing. I mean, Paul, I'm going to quote Paul again, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to bring this down to the kitchen table just to make it practical. And this, this is going to be a difficult example, but come along with me. We could say that there are many sins that we are struggling with as a church. We don't have all day, though, to list all those sins, so I'm just going to choose one. We, as a church, are struggling with pornography. You might not be, but we are. Do you see what I did there? Because of the text? There are many here who struggle with the sin of lust. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's easier for those who are struggling with this sin to hide in the dark. But I fear if this sin isn't brought out into the light more in trusted relationships of confession and accountability, that people around us will perish in their sins. So how can we as a church help? It's a big question. What can we do? Do you love enough to help? Do you care? Do you care enough to pray? As you pray through the directory, do you pray that God would protect that individual from the lies and the deceit of the enemy that would seek to bring us down one by one, all maybe in different ways? Women, will you pray for the men? Men, will you seek to walk with one another? And will we all walk together in accountability and trust? Do you fear God's righteousness enough to confess. Friends, do you see in this text how serious it is to sin against a holy God? Do you see how strongly, you can even read at the beginning of Ezra chapter 9, how strongly Ezra feels this sense of guilt? And do you see, especially here in verse 14, how God's justice and even anger is meant to serve as a motivation for our repentance? Jesus uses the same motivation, same God of the Old Testament as the New Testament. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Hell and God's wrath are meant to be one motivation, not the only motivation, but one motivation to turn away from sin. 
We will grow in confession and repentance when together we see God for who he is and his righteousness and our sin for what it is, a serious affront against a holy God. You know, when I was in high school, my dad warned me strongly about the particular sin that I mentioned, pornography. He, he warned me strongly. And this is how he warned me. I still remember it. And that was years ago. Daniel, I'm afraid that if you continue in the sin or pornography, you will go to hell. It's not all he said. But that part stuck with me. You see, my dad loved me enough to tell me the truth. He wanted me to feel some shame and guilt. And that warning helps me to this day when I'm tempted. Friends, if we've given up the struggle and we continue to break God's command with no repentance, God will be just. And he'll let his cup of wrath pour out on us. But how do guilty sinners, feeling ashamed, embarrassed, and despairing in our sin, Stop. If you've ever tried to quit a bad habit, you know that it isn't easy. It can feel impossible, maybe after years of falling into the same sin. Even warnings of hellfire like this message today of God's judgment will not be enough to make you stop. We can be more irrational than animals. We see it's a trap. We see the hook. But the bait just looks too good to say no. So what should we do? Ezra's prayer is pressing down on us with greater weight as he reaches his climactic conclusion in verse 15. At the end of verse 14, we are left with the question, what should we do? We now know what we should do. But will we? If we're, if we're, especially if we're feeling crushed by feelings of guilt and shame, if we have failed so many times before, how can we be strong and take action when we feel like we cannot even stand up. Well, this leads us to our third and most important question and the conclusion of Ezra's prayer. Without this question, without question number three, questions one and two will just devolve into moralism and legalism. You need question three. Who can stand? Look at Ezra 9.15. Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. You know, you would think that Ezra would conclude this prayer of confession with asking for mercy, asking for grace. God, please forgive us. Lord, give us one more chance. But Ezra recognizes that they have no right to ask God for anything. Ezra doesn't make any request in this entire prayer. He just says, here we are, with blood on our hands, guilty, unable to stand in your presence. Hinson Baptist Church, before we confess and repent of our sin, we must first see that God would have been right to destroy us because of our sin against him and others. We have no right to stand in his presence or ask anything of him. We are guilty. And he would be glorified in judging us eternally for our rebellion against him. If you're a non-Christian here today, you won't understand God's grace until you understand how you are guilty before this holy God. You know, we would love to talk to you after the service about God's grace in the gospel and what it would look like to start a journey of faith and repentance, putting your trust in Christ alone. We would be more than happy to arrange a time to meet up 
or to talk about that. And whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we all have something in common. Yes, we're created in God's image. We are more valuable to God than we could ever imagine. But we are also guilty. We are hypocrites and liars, lustful, divorcees, adulterers, ex-cons, like the tax collector in Luke 18, unable to lift our face to heaven, beating our breast. We join, join our prayer to that tax collector's and to Ezra's here at the end of the prayer and say, here we are with our guilt. Who can stand? Ezra couldn't. He was like Israel's best chance, you know, his, but his sin, he recognized his sin joined him in solidarity to the sin of God's people for whom he confessed. He might have been more righteous than most. He, he didn't break that particular command in verses 11 and 12 that he references. But he knew that in view of God's righteousness, who was he? But Ezra here, taking up our prayer, taking up our confession as a representative, prepares us for one who can stand who had no blood on his hands because of his guilt. But he was exiled because of our guilt. This one identified with our sin. He took upon himself the shame that we deserve to bear for eternity. This one took it on himself, and he was exposed to the righteous anger of God. And because of Jesus While we are sinners burdened by our guilt and shame, we as new covenant believers can join our prayer to Ezra's and confess our sin and our guilt together. But also, we can say along with Ezra, he is my God. He is our Lord. He is the Lord God of Israel. Did you notice that in verse 15? The Lord God of Israel. This God identifies with his people. And today, we have known him as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the Lord of the church. God has tied his fate to his covenant people, the remnant that he has preserved. So struggling Christian, weighed down by guilt and shame, God will not abandon Those who, along with Ezra and God's people throughout all time, call this holy and righteous God, my God. Church, God will not abandon if we call him our Lord through Christ Jesus, our Lord in the gospel. And non-Christian friend, you can call this righteous, promise-keeping God your God today because of what Christ has accomplished And how he takes up this prayer. So may his grace and his mercy found in the death of Christ lead you to the joy of a life of repentance and faith and fellowship with Christ's body, the church. Friends, our guilt is great. I knew I was guilty for totaling my friend's car all those years ago. My friend's parents took care of the bill. Uh, They didn't allow me to pay a dime or for the damages or the way their insurance went up. They were being kind and generous. But God's kindness, 
his generosity, his mercy is not merely grounded in him just being a super nice guy who sweeps our sins under the rug. No, his kindness and his grace is grounded in his righteousness that he would send his son to bear the penalty that you and I deserve for our guilt and shame. Friends, what can we say? Well, we confess our sin. We can confess our sin and sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like us. What can we do? We can turn from our guilt and shame and repentance, knowing that Christ took on every last ounce of that guilt and shame on the cross. He bore it all. And who can stand? All who are found hidden in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our shield from God's wrath. And Jesus is our portion as long as life endures. Those cast down in guilt and shame can be lifted to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Let's stand together in him now and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand not on our own merits, not in our own strength. Lord, you have done it all. Lord, we ask that you would preserve us because of Christ. May we be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Father, when we feel burdened, when we feel ashamed, when we feel our guilt, Lord, cause us to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, help us to know that it is finished and that we will not have to face your anger or your justice because Christ faced it for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.